0: Good morning and welcome to this um, time as part of our service. I would really be curious to know, I guess I won't ask for any voiced opinion here, but I would be curious to know what uh, you, as um, people here at Prairie, expect during this part of the service. Um, I grapple with that personally. I'm not sure how I would answer that question if someone asked me, actually. But um, what is what is a what is church attendance and the resulting instruction that comes from church attendance, whether it be this part of it or Sunday school or devotions? But especially, I'm looking at, at this particular segment of our of our church uh, worship service. What should it be? Is it supposed to be a power talk that we're going to go away, you know, this is what gets us through the next week? Is, is that what it is? Is it a comedy show? Um, that's, in my opinion, what some of these presentations have um, kind of uh, boiled down to, unfortunately. Is it uh, a talk just to make us feel good? We we all go away um, feeling good. Um I was interested that um, in our different Anabaptist heritages, uh, Dutch versus Swiss-German, the Dutch always said they were gathering for admonition, and the Swiss-German people said they were going to meeting. So I'm not sure what the difference was there completely, but apparently the Dutch looked to be admonished, and the the Swiss were going to have more of a Sunday school, I guess. I'm not sure how that was. Anyway, what latitude is acceptable in a presentation? And you're like, now what's he up to? Why is he why is he belaboring this? Well, I, I found it interesting that um S. M. Lockridge, and I don't know if that name means anything to you, but he's a black preacher that's not necessarily an Anabaptist or anything, but somewhat of an interesting guy to listen to if if no for no other reason his accent is somewhat uh, engaging. But he had this to say. He said that every sermon should include four things. He said it should teach you, so you should be taught something. He said it should encourage you. Everybody should go away encouraged. He said every sermon should tan your hide, in his words. And he said every sermon should inspire for service. So that is what he tries to incorporate into his, his presentations. And I'm not sure that... It could be said that I have always done all four of those. I think you'd want to keep the tanning, the hide, somewhat um, uh, minimal, if nothing else. But I'm good with the teaching and encouraging inspiring, and I suppose correction is in in order sometimes, too. I also recently heard um, instruction at a church meeting uh, is parallel to eating a meal. So... Unless you're different than me, if I would ha- if I would ask you what you had for supper the last seven days, I'd be really curious to know if you could come up with that just like that. Anybody, you think you could? Think you could come up with that? I certainly couldn't. Um, but I can tell you this: we had some pretty good eating every night this week. But I really can't tell you exactly what it was, except last <laughs> night was pizza. I do know that, but that's our typical Saturday evening meal, and we all enjoy it. So on. But what does stand out, I can I would bet that if I ask you, do you have any particular meal in your lifetime that you can say you really enjoy? You probably could all come up with one of those. And if I if I ask you, is there any time you sat down on the table and your host served you something that was really bad or that you could barely get down? I would imagine each one of you would have one of those. Um so that's probably a bit the way it is with, with, with uh, presentations such as, as this this morning. Probably you can't pick out very many of them that you actually remember, but they did nourish, and they, there's probably some ones that you really remember better than others. That's just probably the long and short of it. I personally am not an experimenter. I don't experiment with food much. If I, uh, if I go to a restaurant, I'm good with just sitting down, and taking what I know I will enjoy, rather than taking the risk that I'm going to eat something that I may not enjoy. And um, so, anyway, um, that's that's just mine, my my way of doing things. So, I guess I struggled a bit. Um, I struggle, I should say. I struggle coming up with subject matter to share that I feel will, you know, will um, serve to encourage us and uh, and. Um, um, the resulting instruction being a good thing for us. That, that, is a, that is something I struggle with. So this morning, I have probably one of those meals, if you will, that you, we probably wouldn't want to eat every day. I'll say that up front. It probably is one we wouldn't want to, um, uh, to serve up and eat every day. And I even question if it was an appropriate topic for, for a Sunday morning. But I'm going, to, I'm going to give it to you because this is where my mind has been traveling the last few weeks, months, and there's just been some things that, that I've been reading and, um, and uh, contemplating on that I felt like that I was just going to share my mind this morning. So the title of this talk is simply this, What is a Conservative Mennonite Conserving? Alright, so what is a Conservative Mennonite Conserving? I don't know if you realize this or not. I'm sure you do, but the term "conservative Mennonite" is not a biblical term. Are you good with that? Are you good with being part of a dom- denomination that the the particular our particular name is not exactly in the Bible? It, it's not. Um, and have you ever wondered where the where we got tied into the word "conservative"? Why are we dubbed the conservative Mennonites? I wonder if you've uh, if you've ever wondered that before. I remember as a child being a bit confused about this matter. Um, I uh, I grew up in a very very conservative setting in uh, in eastern Pennsylvania there, and I remember every every Sunday morning when we go to church we would pass another Mennonite church. And this particular Mennonite church was not at all like the Mennonite church I attended. I remember this, you know, every, every Sunday we passed this this church two miles up the road. And in my mind, as I analyzed what I thought as a small child, here, here's how I perceived it. I perceived that we were real Mennonites, and they were pretend Mennonites. That's just the way I, I, I perceived it. That, that was my childish perception. And I always wondered, why the dichotomy? between that church and my church. why the difference? what, what happened that that this church was like that and our, my church was like this but when you look at the sign they both said Mennonite. And I never really um, I never really had that question answered as a child to my satisfaction I guess. So I'm just going to give you a few things that um, that have made my mind run in this direction here lately and uh, before we just uh, delve into it, so I don't know how many of you um, get this little postcard in the mail, um, Anabaptist Identity Conference. I think it's a unique conference. Well, the question that's on the postcard is, it says, who are we? Like, we're confused people. We, we don't know who we are. And um, I, I find that interesting, and I find the, the entire conference somewhat interesting, but I'll just leave that. But that was that was something that, that st- question stood out to me, who, who are we? Well, who are we? I also uh, uh, subscribe to the Easter Mennonite testimony, and I just got the when I got the first issue of this year, it came with volume. I keep this Roman numeral. Can you see that Roman numeral L? Can any of you children tell me what the Roman numeral L stands for? Anybody? Excuse me. Fifty, thank you. Good, you're paying attention in school, aren't you? Fifty. So for me, that resonated, you know, with me a bit more than maybe with some of the rest of you. the The church of my of my childhood is now in its fiftieth year, um, and that was one of the one of the initial conservative churches that would have started back in the sixties. I also had an interesting conversation with a. Uh, uh, in Texas, when I was in Texas this past winter, a few weeks ago, I was privileged to work with a uh, a couple of men from from a, uh, a a beachy church in in Kentucky. And um, this particular brother I was working with, his father uh, would have would have left the Amish church when he was a child and joined the beachies and whatever. And, and so he, he did not have much um, he did not have much um, knowledge of, of the Mennonite Church, and so we had some really interesting, engaging discussions about um, where we who we are, whatever. And he asked me a very a very thought provoking question at one point. There, he said, "Could you explain to me why the Mennonite churches uh, went the direction they did in the fifties and sixties? Could you explain that to me?" Well, that that that's a long topic, but it was an interesting question, and again, something that engaged my my mind in this in this particular direction. And probably, lastly, I don't know how many of you um, get this paper, the the uh, stewardship connection by Anabaptist Financial. Probably a few of you do, but in the last issue that I just received here a few weeks ago, Gary Miller had a had a uh, he, he wrote the, the topic here. Um, and I would like to just read some excerpts out of him. Gary Miller, by the way, is the one that has written various books that, uh, that we have on, on, on finances, kingdom finances or whatever. You, I'm sure many of you have read it. But it, I'm, I'm going to read some excerpts out of this article that really got me thinking once again. So he, he puts it like this, rethinking local church vision. He says every church should be able to explain its goals and its reason for existing. Could you tell me the purpose of your church and why you attend the one you do rather than the church down the road? Almost every church says its goal is to reach out to the community. Are you actually reaching out and expanding the kingdom, or are you only preserving what you have? Would you be shocked if someone from the community would actually join your church? Then he goes on to say, churches should have leaders capable of explaining and sharing a compelling vision with others that others want to follow. How do you relate to the surrounding culture in areas such as business, family life, technology, attire, and other similar issues? Is our churches in our churches there is a continuum from non-assimilation or staying away from mainstream culture on one end to total assimilation? or embracing mainstream culture on the on the other at every point along the line there are advantages and disadvantages and all of us are somewhere on this continuum can you explain why you have chosen to be where you are on this continuum are you moving along this line and if so is there is the movement intentional or just in reaction to others there's always going to be a tension between these two two ends but you should know why you are why you are where you are and how it impacts you. Either you decided to be there by design, or you have arrived at your position by default. You just kind of ended up there. Are you able to discuss this as a church? We tend to be dragged along this continuum as, a, as the culture around us changes. We tend to move toward what we love and away from what we despise. If you love the world, you will tend to drift and assimilate with it. On the other hand, if you become enamored with a plain lifestyle or begin reacting to others who are drifting toward the world, you will tend to withdraw from people and move further toward non assimilation Your cultural expressions should be dictated by a vision of values, principles, and practices that cut across mainstream culture. Does your brotherhood have the ability to sit down and talk why you are where you are and how you got there? Beyond this, is everyone committed to seeing a church's, the church vision? Is there hope and anticipation about the future in your church? That was just very thought-provoking to me, and um, I thought he, he um, asked some, some somewhat pertinent questions. Okay, so what is the meaning of conservative? Well, maybe I should just back up here. The, the goal of, of my talk here this morning... Is I want to emphasize it is not this. It is in no way to be judgmental, and it is no way to lift us up on this pedestal or to trash us. Okay? We we tend to can go in, in one of those directions. We can either raise ourselves up and say we've arrived, or we can say, Man, we got so so far to go, we may as well just give up. And that's not what I want to do. What I would like to do is say, you know. It's been roughly 50 years since the conservative Mennonite church came into existence. Are we ready? Do we have the tools to take us another 50 years? Is it time to just sit back and and rethink, um, as, as Brother Gary here was bringing out, do we know why we are where we are and what direction we're actually heading? Where are we on that continuum that he talked about? And personally, it doesn't really bother me all that much if 50 years from now the sign at the end of the driveway wouldn't necessarily say Mennonite. Now, before you're shocked by that, just hear me hear, hear me out. What I want is for each of us to have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Whether we hang on to that name Mennonite or not is kind of ambiguous with me. I don't mind if we do. I'm certainly not an anti-Mennonite person at all. But it's so important that we understand that th- that is. The, the, the sum of the thing is so much bigger than that, so much bigger than that. And so that's what I kind of want to make sure that I stress right at the outset. Okay, so I just went to the, to the dictionary and looked up the word conservative. The word conservative means tending or disposed to maintaining existing views, conditions, or institutions. Traditional conservative policies. And this is the one I think probably is the one, the next explanation is probably the one I think that we would ascribe to. To be conservative means you are marked by moderation and caution. And and I'm okay with that. I'm totally okay with with being marked as a person that's moderate and cautious. But what about the, what's a Mennonite? I thought, you know, this would be really interesting to know what Webster says a Mennonite is. So I looked it up, and here's what Webster says. He says, a member of any various Protestant groups derived from the Anabaptist movement in Holland and characterized by congregational autonomy and rejection of military service. Does that that seem like that would sum it up to you? I'd be, be curious what you think of that. Now here's the one that I thought was even more interesting. On my online dictionary there, The definition of Mennonite for English language learners. A person who belongs to a Christian religious group whose members live simply and wear plain clothes. That's a Mennonite. Is conservative, is that idea of biblical, could we back that up biblically? That the word conservative is where it's at. Are we okay with that word? Is that a biblical term? Well, I already told you conservative is not in the Bible, necessarily that word. But I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah 6.16. And the reason I want you to turn here is because in my youth, I will admit, this verse was often used as a basis for conservatism. And so I naturally turned to it again to look at the context and to see if I agreed with, with what was often used as a, as a basis for conservatism. Jeremiah 6.16 says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. I'm, I'm going to just briefly give you the context. In the context here, Jeremiah is saying, um, there's some old paths, so or the Lord is saying through Jeremiah, There's some old paths that you folks have veered from, and you need to get back to the old paths. And the basis for my childhood's uh, theme verse for conservatism was, the the impetus of that was, okay, the churches we were a part of were going down the wrong path. It was time to get back to the old path. Well, if you take that and you run into the New Testament, we have have the, the example of the Pharisees that were very conservative people, And they had been on a path for a very long time, which wasn't necessarily a bad path, but because of their focus, it had become a bad path. So while they were conservatives, they were conserving the wrong thing, okay? And there again, Jesus called them back to a path that was more godly and right, but that would have meant that it would have flew in the face of of some of their conservative ways, and thus they were against it. So this, this thing of conservative can be very ambiguous and ambivalent. In other words, so are we going to say we're going to conserve everything in the last 100 years? That's just boom, that's it. That, that's the chopping point. Or are we supposed to go back? Where, where does the conservative line start, in other words? I just want to say this. To be conservative does not mean that we drive a stake in some sort of application, say this cannot move. Because we're going to get in trouble if we do that. But neither does it say that it is wrong to do that at times either. Okay, And I'm going to get into that more as we move on. But I I would just say that in some ways I understand why this was used as somewhat of a theme verse. Just some other verses I thought of. Turn to this one. I thought this was very interesting. In Proverbs 24, as I was kind of perusing what the Bible says about conservatism or change and that sort of thing. I just stumbled over this verse. I never knew it was here. And it is a very interesting verse. Proverbs 24, 21. My son, fear thou the Lord and the King and meddle not with them that are given to change. For their calamity shall rise suddenly and who knoweth the ruin of them both. Now, if you read that in NIV... It says, meddle not with them that are given to rebellion, or something like that. But I, I checked various translations. Most of them in, it have uh, in, have interpreted that word as change, or changers, or people that want to change, or something like that. Um, I take these verses as somewhat of a caution, that when we, when we make change, let's do it deliberately. Let's try to think... Um, down the road, what what will that change bring? Because people that, well, if you take the NIV part of it, it seems to lump people that want change with people that are rebellious. Really, that's kind of that's kind of a lump, and that that can get you places you don't want to go either. But um, but anyway, uh, I thought this was just a very interesting verse. Uh, I'll just refer to two others that I, I came by. Um, and this is a New Testament one again, Deuteronomy 4.9, Only take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, depart from them from thy heart, and l- lest they depart from thy heart all the days of your life, but teach them to your sons and your sons' sons. Basically, what Moses is saying there is, remember you have a tendency to forget. Remember you have a tendency to, to be pulled the wrong direction. And again, Jude comes back and says the same thing in verse three of his book. He said, "I was going to write you a friendly letter, but it turns out I got to, I got to write to you to tell you to earnestly contend for the faith. In other words, conserve what you were given." Okay, and there he's talking about the the faith that was once delivered to the to the saints. So, what I would like to do at at this point is um, I, w- I would like to somewhat um, it, it, at some point here, I would like to uh, help us to think about what it does mean to be a conservative Mennonite and what it does not mean. Okay, that's that's kind of my goal here in this whole thing. And I'd like to do this, obviously, from a biblical perspective, but there's one thing that personally, I, I guess just give my own personal testimony here, um, I know that I am uh, I am a man that enjoys history, but I want you to know something. I was not always that way. The reason I enjoy it so much is because what it did for me personally. As a teenager and young adult, I I was not very stable in my faith. Okay, you 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 could have uh, I could have been easily blown. Uh, let, let's put it that way. And there was things about the, and I'll just say it, the Mennonite faith that I really grappled with. I did not understand the the reason, and I didn't even understand some of the doctrine. And that's being said, I even attended Bible schools and so on. It's not like I wasn't exposed, but either I wasn't listening or somebody didn't do a good job of explaining. I'm not sure which. Probably both. Probably more me, actually. But there was a point in my life where I needed some answers and I began to dig into history to find it out. And you say, "Well, you poor soul, you, you couldn't find it right here." Well, w- what it did for me was it helped me give give me context to my faith. That's what it did. It helped me to understand some of the things that didn't make sense to me, and that was very, very helpful for me. And what I find is, I when I you know talk to people, inter- interact with people, very few of us. And this is no slam, it's just the way it is. Very few of us understand um, the, 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 um, the way the Mennonite Church uh, evolved in America. Very, very few of us understand that. And understand why we have ended up at, where we have ended up because of certain things that evolved in the last two, three hundred years. And I, and I point no fingers, it's just the case. We just don't know that. So what I would like to do this morning... Is I would like to very take you very briefly on a journey um, through the through the Mennonite Church in America, uh, starting back about well when they emigrated over, and I'm going to make it very brief, but it's going to be somewhat historical in nature and a bit less uh, a bit less um, um, out of just the, the Bible at this point. But I would like to come back. Later, and uh, and 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 have some teaching that would maybe be more um, from from the Bible and so on. So I'm going to. Uh, I'm just going to. How's this going to work here? Uh, I guess the first thing you have to do is pull this down. All right. Now I know you folks in the back are going to have a very difficult time seeing this but uh, so be it. Um, it's not terribly important that you see every little detail here. But, um, but if you see here, what somebody attempted to do was, um, was draw the trajectory and, and the different, um, um, I hesitate to call them schisms, but different directions of different groups of Mennonite and Amish people in America. And uh, we're just going to focus on this line here, the Mennonites, And um, I'm just going to briefly tell you what these little dots along the way represent. And I'm I'm hoping I can give you um, a few stories in there that that keep your interest there and just not boring names and dates. But the first, uh, so we have the the Amish Mennonites and we have the Mennonites. I'm not going to go into that story, but it is as it is. We're going to travel with the Mennonites. Here we uh, we have a stopping point in 1778 where Christian Funk and his friends support the American Revolution. All right? So, um, very briefly, during the American Revolution, there was a lot of Mennonites that felt that they had pledged allegiance to the king and that the United States was a rebellious government. And so they they would not take the oath of allegiance. They would not participate in anything that had to do with what they thought was an act of rebellion. And so Christian Funk here, he who's a Franconia bishop, he had taken the time to read the Pennsylvania Constitution, and he he didn't think it was as bad as his friends thought it was. And so he was good with taking the Oath of Allegiance, and he was good with um, he was good with paying the war tax, which immediately put him at odds with his friends. And so he pulled off with a few people and started his own little uh, thing there in Franconia. It didn't last real long. It kind of hit rocky waters. And didn't last real long, and eventually these churches hooked up with some of these other ones down here later. If you come down here to the to the next one, you have this 1812. You have John Herr. He was a man that, again, he was he was uh, disappointed over some of the lethargic ways of the Mennonite Church of his time. He felt like they had lost the um, lost some of the. Um, old doctrine that um, Meadow Simon and so on would have taught. So he uh, he started what was called the Reformed Mennonite Church and uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, but again, a very small church uh, but they do last to the day. There is, there is still some Reformed Mennonites around. They're marked by being extremely conservative but they have an interesting, uh, interesting twist. Their young people are extremely I'll just use the word worldly. Lack of a better term, and the reason for that is, is they really believe in a definitive heart change, and they want to see definitive difference when a person <coughs> comes to Jesus. And so their thought is, let's just let our children taste the world, and then when they make that change, there will be no question in anybody's mind that a change has been made. So that that's kind of their thing. Um, just an interesting, an interesting thing here on the Reformed Mennonites. I don't know uh, how many of you know this, but the uh, Chocolate King of, of Pennsylvania, Milton Hershey, his grandfather was a was a Mennonite um, was a Mennonite pastor in the Reformed Church. He never himself was, but um, apparently, some lo- somewhere along the line, Reformed Mennonites had a good chocolate recipe. So uh, the next one down here we have is uh, John Oberhalser in uh, in 1847. He was a bishop out of the Franconia Conference that he was a very progressive man for his time. He, he was really into the Presbyterian revivals, into Sunday school, into missions, into, um, into those types of things. And he was very ecumenical in his, in his thought. And he thought it was time for the Mennonite Church to just come up to speed and, uh, and get with the times, in other words. And so uh, I won't go into all the details there. But eventually, his very forward-thinking uh, ways uh, led to a schism there in the Franconia Conference, and he began what was called the East District Mennonite Church, which eventually joined up with some Western churches from some Russian immigrants and became the General Conference Mennonite Church, which is is in existence today. One thing I'll just say about this particular division is... Um, even though I think he had some legitimate complaints, um, he got himself into deep waters very, very quickly by hooking up with Protestants. Um, he was he was very quick to um, well. By 1911, one of their one of the general conference pastors uh, participated in a woman or, uh, ordination. So that kind of shows the trajectory they went on. Well, I'll leave it at that. Um, I just will say this in. Uh, as a something you might find interesting. Does the name Annie Funk mean anything to anybody? Annie Funk? Okay. Annie Funk was, a, uh, was the first woman missionary to India, and she was on the Titanic whenever it sunk uh, on the way back. And she was a part of the General Conference Mennonites. She was a part of the Hereford Congregation there in, in uh, eastern Pennsylvania. And um, she, uh, there's, a, there's a memorial to her today there at that church. If we move down here, we come to this John Haldeman in 1859. Again, I I, I want to just briefly say that, again, he was a man that I think was very sincere. He was uh, concerned, again, about the lethargic Mennonite church of his day, and you'll find that kind of is a theme in through here. And um, so he, he split off unordained and started his own church, which really lagged for about 20 years. He didn't have much of a following, but... Um, when the Russian immigration took place in the 1870s, and a lot of Russians moved into Russian Mennonites moved into the Midwest, there was a group called the Mindy of Mennonites that were quite old order in their ways. That for some reason, what John Holloman had to offer resonated with them, and I won't go into a lot of detail. But that is why today you find a lot of of Russian-sounding names in the in the um, in that um, particular group, uh, because of the because of those um, those people that joined up with that, and they are in, in existence today, and we're very familiar with them here in this area. Um, I'm not going to talk much about John Funk here. Um, this just this is just saying that at this point, I should just point out if you notice here, the General Conference Mennonites kind of have a different trajectory here than the what we call the Old Mennonite Church, which is kind of our roots, most of us. And um, John Funk was a man that introduced a lot of changes to the Mennonite Church in the late 1800s, and I'll maybe talk about that later. But um, as it ends up, there was somewhat of a reaction to that, and we have the founding of the Old Order Mennonite Church that was uh, opposed to some of these changes that were coming in, such as Sunday schools, revivals, and that sort of thing. So they started the Old Order Mennonite Church, which goes right there. And uh, that would be the Groffdell Mennonite churches that many of you are familiar with. And in 1927, we have the Weaverland Conference Church splitting off of the old orders uh, simply over the issue of, um, of the uh, automobile. Okay, so if you come on, on down through here, in 19, 1898, you have... Um, you have the beginnings of what the, the Mennonite Church began to form, what they call the Mennonite General Conference. Now, let, let's make sure we keep that separate from the General Conference Mennonites. What the Mennonite General Conference was, was an organization of seven or eight different district conferences throughout the United States They said, let's get together and let's, um, let's try to pull together more closely than what we currently are. And I just would like to read to you um, what, the, um, what, the, um, okay, what the stated reason was for the beginning of the Mennonite General Conference. It was to bring about a closer unity of sentiment on gospel principles, weed out heretical teachings, and, the, and subsequently result in the, a, more, a more pure church. And it never intended to initiate legislative powers. Some of or the other, it did veer from that a bit, and it did carry a lot of weight um, as um, as it rolled along. It, it carried much more binding weight, I think, than what it originally was intended to carry. One of the, one of the leaders uh, during this time period, from about 1898 to ni- 1944, was Daniel Kaufman. He was a man that wielded a lot of influence on the Mennonite Church, and um, he was a prolific writer. He was a, a good speaker. He was an organizer. He, he had just about every, everything a man could desire in the way of being a leader, I guess. And um, there was a time that I understand during his lifetime he served con- he served um, on 22 different committees and boards at the same time, simultaneously. Now that's a busy man. And uh, So anyway, he had a lot of influence here. One of the books you probably have in your library is Doctrines of the Bible, and he obviously is the, the author of that. But uh, in in 1944 there was a there was a bit of a change and I'm not going to talk about that right now. But uh, the trajectory that was set in this in this period here of the Mennonite Church uh, began to change in the in the mid 40s. And one thing that happened in 1944 was Daniel Kaufman died. That was the year he died. And so he he was no longer there to kind of be you know some of the glue that held the thing together. I guess. And uh, at the general conference meeting that year, uh, there was a decision made that the, some of the rulings and so on that had taken place in the Mennonite Church during this course of time right here from the late 1800s to 44, they were no longer going to consider them binding and each, um, each district, each conference could figure things out for themselves. And I don't even know how to feel about that. But it is interesting that at that point is when things started to go the other direction a bit. And um, very, very quickly, we went from a church that would be quite similar to ours to churches that um, very quickly assimilated and very quickly were willing not only to drop distinctive Mennonite practice but were very, very easily overtaken by what I would consider very unbiblical practices. So, this, this particular group of people right in here is what came to be known as the conservative Mennonite churches. And they were basically churches that, for whatever reasons, left the conferences that they were part of and, and felt that biblical principles were being undermined and not stood up for anymore. And they, they, they wanted to retain that. They wanted to conserve. They wanted to conserve what they felt were was biblical and right. And so uh, you have these, these many different fellowships and conferences that started from... Um, and, and I'm not going to go into all of that. Some of them were a bit more unfortunate than others. But we all have the same idea. We want to find a way that we can live in this world we live in and yet, still maintain a um, a conservative lifestyle, and more than that, a biblical lifestyle. That, that's our goal. I think if if we had to uh, if we had to um, comment on that, I will say this: um, when the conservative churches people left the conference churches, um, the more they left, the more quickly the slides seem to become here in the Mennonite Church, and I say that kindly. But um, um, pretty much not only did they lose the vestiges of of being a Mennonite, but they they lost they lost the biblical principles as well. And I'm I'm sorry to say that, but it is the truth. Um, one thing I just will say that is perhaps uh, in is perhaps heartening is you have this line here where the General Conference Mennonites and the old Mennonite Church converges here in 1999 and form Mennonite Church USA. And Mennonite Church USA just continued to basically uh, go, I'd say, somewhat on a downward trend and um, to the point where they have, in the recent past, accepted gay marriage and that sort of thing. And you, you're, you understand that. But something that, that happened I, I find so heartening is this past year, my father-in-law sent me a a clip out of the Lancaster paper that the Lancaster Conference, which would be my wife's parents' history, um, decided to break with Mennonite Church USA because of that particular issue, and that's gay marriage. And I don't know. Somehow, I just found that heart that you know, indeed, you know, we we can tend to look at those people and say, you know, th- there's a, they're a point they're at a point of no return. But something or the other that did not resonate with those people and, and they left and uh, they are no longer a part of that particular organization and um, I also found it interesting that at that same time in the area where I came from the Franklin County Conference chose to leave as well and become a district of the Lancaster Conference so it means nothing to you but it means something to me I know so um, I guess that's all I really want to comment on here um, about I think um, but I, I'm almost afraid I probably went over that too fast that you're probably brain dead and don't even really get it anyway but I'm hoping that just this visual gives you just a little bit of an understanding of why why we are who we are and who we kind of call the conservatives and why we did this and, and so on and so forth um, one thing, another thing I just wanted to comment um, and, and we'll, we'll touch on this next time I guess but right in through here, probably one of the one of the problems we've we've had as a conservative Mennonite church is um, how do you re- how do you conserve and yet still be real? Okay. And I hope you understand what I mean by real. But spiritual people, not just trying to conserve a lifestyle, but real heart changed people. And because of that concern, um, we have the the charity church movement that would have kind of started in this area too. And it was started because of that concern. And I want to comment to that too at some point as well. Um, just, But I just want to drop that in there. So if this was a Bible school class, I would say any questions. But it's not, so I'm not going to, because I, I'm not sure I could answer anyway. And I, um, now you understand why I maybe was hesitating, because it feels more like an instruction rather than an inspiration. But I want to get to the inspiration the next time, but um, you would not be happy with me if I started into that right now. So I hope that little background uh, you, you found helpful, and um, I hope perhaps um, the next time we, we come together we can, we can maybe uh, look a little bit more at, at maybe some of our challenges and maybe um, um, encourage us and inspire us to stay faithful uh, to Christ and, uh, to the true church. And by the way, I don't think that's just conservative Mennonites. And, um, and you know, it, it one day that, um, yeah, we're, we're where we want to be. We just are where we want to be. That's, that's my heart today. I